You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. We're going to be talking today about lymphoma and in particular focusing on relapse and refractory lymphoma. And I'll just share personal observation about this, which is that over the years, as I've treated patients with lymphoma, in a sense, I've always had the expectation that they're going to respond and they're going to do well. And when patients don't, I still find myself sort of shocked, again, expecting that there's going to be a response. Though, unfortunately, that is not always the case. And so we're really going to focus today on patients who don't respond or, unfortunately, who relapse. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Sonali Smith, who is the Elwood Jensen Professor of Medicine, Chief of the Section of Hematology and Oncology, and Co-Director of the Lymphoma Program at the University of Chicago. Sonali, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Ken, for having me here. It's really a pleasure to talk about lymphoma. It's an area that I've focused on for the last 20 years, and there's so many exciting things. I also just want to say thank you to LLS and to you for the kind invitation to be here. Thank you. I'd like to start out by talking about the broad categories of lymphoma. So as a generalist, let me ask this question that's been on my mind. I still think about lymphoma as low-grade, intermediate-grade, and high-grade. So I actually wanted to check in with you. Is that still a valid classification, or in essence, should I now migrate to a different way to look at it? especially in light of the conversation we're about to have on refractory lymphoma? Yeah, that's a really important question. And for lymphoma, the field has really evolved as we've learned more about the biology. And the best way that I think about lymphoma is really that it's a family of about 80 to 100 different subtypes. And the old paradigm of indolent, aggressive, and highly aggressive you know, still holds true for many, but not all of the diseases. And maybe some examples are, we know that indolent lymphomas are very slow growing, but incurable. Aggressive lymphomas are faster growing, but potentially curable. And then we've got some of the very fast growing lymphomas, as they were originally described, that may be very susceptible to chemotherapy and may be highly curable. But those terms and that terminology is incomplete. And so, of course, we now have some diseases like mantle cell, which are aggressive but incurable, and we have T-cell lymphomas, which can be aggressive or highly aggressive and very difficult to cure. So I would say we still use those terms, but we've evolved. Using, well, so let me ask you today, when you see a new patient in clinic, what is your thought process? So someone comes to you, they say, doctor, I've got lymphoma. How are you going about uh, classifying? And how does that affect your treatment planning? I think one of the most important pieces of information is the diagnostic material. So that initial pathology and that biopsy really drive the majority of the treatment decision-making. And so it's really important that people have a biopsy that's of sufficient size. That's one area that is really critical to make the best decisions. And then the other is to have an expert hematopathologist review the material. You know, some of these lymphomas can be very confusing. They can look very similar. 
And it's important that if there's any diagnostic uncertainty that there is a second opinion, you know, requested by an expert hematopathologist. There's unfortunately a group of patients who are who relapse or are refractory. And I wanted to get a sense from you of the patients you treat with various types of B-cell, T-cell lymphoma, how often do you see resistance, primary resistance? How often do you see relapse? Tell us more about that, if you would. So tying in a, a little bit to the question you had previously, which is how do we start the conversation? Knowing what somebody has really drives the conversation in terms of expectations and then the type of treatment and the likelihood of relapse. So when we're thinking about all the different kinds, let's just uh, go with some of the slower growing lymphomas that are incurable. The likelihood of relapse is essentially 100%. You know, these are indolent diseases that will wax and wane over a person's lifetime. And although we can manage them, we can't technically cure them. However, they are so slow growing that in the vast majority of people, they are diseases that people live with. And it's really important as an oncologist to take the long view so that we don't expose people to treatment that might make them feel better in the short term or might put their disease into remission but doesn't actually improve their cure rate or quality of life. And then we have the other extreme, where we have some of the aggressive lymphomas, like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This is a disease where the goal of treatment is cure. We tolerate multimodal chemotherapy in order to get the best cure possible. But we also know that about 30 to 40% of people with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma will not be cured with RCHOP, and we have to be ready with our second-line treatments. So it really depends on the disease we're treating that sets up our expectations for disease control versus cure versus relapse. So I want to ask you about the word cure, which I still think is a very interesting concept. How often do patients ask up front when you meet them, doctor, is this curable? And do patients ask later on? And I want to get your view on it, and then I'll, I'll share a little bit of mine. Yeah, I do think that cure is an important concept, and you're right that it probably means different things. I mean, traditionally speaking, cure means that the disease goes into remission and never comes back, and the person goes on to live a good life and, you know, eventually dies of something unrelated to their disease, their cancer. On the other hand, we have some lymphomas where we control it for so many years, sometimes even decades. And they end up still having a good quality of life. And still, eventually, if they pass away, it's not due to their cancer or the treatment for their cancer. So I agree. I think that cure is a tricky word. I do frame it in the context of the, the specific type of lymphoma I'm treating. I find patients don't ask very often. I mean, it's probably one of the biggest things on people's mind uh, with any type of cancer, but I don't find they ask, what's been your observation seeing new patients? How often do people ask, is this curable? Yeah, I think that today people do a lot of pre-reading before they come to see me. Right. <laughs> you know, the internet is full of information. And so, you know, I probably as you have, I've seen an evolution of people asking about curability because they read about things ahead of time. And so they already have an idea of, is this curable or not curable? I think that most of them want to know what their prognosis is. They want to know what to expect. Most people want to live and live a good, healthy, quality life. But you're right. I think there has been a little bit of a movement away from them overtly asking, can I be cured? And I think those are some of the reasons. Yeah. How common is primary resistance to therapy? Again, looking across the spectrum of lymphoma that you treat. 
Yeah, I think primary resistance is commonly seen in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma, and some of the mantle cell lymphoma patients. So there are some subsets where primary refractory disease is somewhat expected right from the beginning. Other diseases like follicular, marginal zone lymphoma, Waldenstrom's, those, we tend to get responses. The question there is really how long do the responses last? What are the mechanisms of resistance when someone is primarily uh, resistant to treatment? Yeah, I think some of it has to do with, you know, maybe I can think about it in three different ways. One is that resistant disease might be related to the biology, that there are some patients who have a biologically very aggressive disease. But the second may be the type of treatment that we offer them. So people who are resistant to chemotherapy might still respond to CAR-T or might still respond to other things. So, you know, resistance evolves as our treatment evolves. And then I think the third piece of resistance has to do with the patient themselves. You know, there are some patients who have organ dysfunction or are older or are frail, and they're resistant to treatment, not so much resistant, but intolerant. And so we have different expectations for special groups of patients. So it's a mix. Let me ask you about a patient. And again, just to reflect on this issue of dose and comorbidities, but I'm starting an older patient now on mini R-CHOPs, so the doses of the CHOP are reduced. What's your view on dose intensity? And you know, are we sort of setting up patients to not do well using a reduced dose regimen? Yeah, it's funny that you should ask that. I actually just wrote an editorial, which will come out in JCO, on this topic. And I think the main limitation we have in the clinic when we're sitting there with a patient is trying to predict toxicity, right? Mm -hmm. So there are some older patients who can get full dose R-CHOP and do just fine. There are others who will get R-mini-CHOP and do just fine. And there are others that will fall apart no matter what you give them. And the ability to predict side effects and toxicity at the first time you meet somebody is very limited. What's going to come out in the next few months is that there are some lymphoma-specific geriatric tools that are designed to help us determine the fitness of a patient who is older. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, through SWOG, so one of my other hats is that I'm a vice chair of the SWOG Lymphoma Committee, and we have designed the very first U.S. intergroup clinical trial that randomizes patients to either R-mini-CHOP or R-mini-CHOP plus a hypomethylating agent called CC486. But Mm -hmm. the unique part of it is that everybody will have geriatric assessment to begin with. And the hope is that we can validate, you know, this very simple tool developed by the Italians that any oncologist, nurse, physician assistant, nurse practitioner can use to predict the toxicity. Would your hypothesis be that a regular dose, full dose R-CHOP will end up being superior? Is that question being asked? No, that's a good question. I don't think full dose R-CHOP is reasonable in the older patients, people over the age of 80, for mm-hmm. example, or even 75 and lots of comorbidities. So we're starting with everybody getting R-mini-CHOP. Unfortunately, I think we've really hit the upper limit of what chemotherapy can do for this group of patients. You know, this is the most important aspect that we do. We try to balance the risk and the benefit for patients, and older patients are a special population. How do you decide, again, when you've started a patient on treatment, what do you use as your stop point to say this patient's resistant or uh, a refractory to the regimen I'm using? 
I think a lot of it has to do with communication with the patient and, you know, frequent exams and, of course, the CT scans and other documented ways of progression. But I think the most important thing is that if a patient, you know, you end up with kinetic failure, meaning that the response duration gets shorter and shorter. And by the time you're at a point where the response to your most recent treatment is on the order of months, I think that's really the clue that it's time to think about palliative care. And in blood cancers and in lymphoma, I think we're all always hopeful because, you know, we happen to treat cancers that tend to be responsive to a lot of different treatments. But what's really important, I think, is that if people are not responding with a good quality of life for long enough, it is time to say, let's switch the goals of care. But it's tricky. We all want to help our patients to the best of our ability. And, you know, we also put on our own blinders. That's right. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, years ago, there was a study comparing regimens for large cell lymphoma, and there was MACOP-B and MBACOT, and obviously more drugs. So certainly the outcomes were the same. Is my remembrance, at least, and our CHOP ended up being easier to use and safer and just as effective. But was your sense that initial resistance to therapy was less with having more drugs? Because we always think of long-term overall survival as most important. But was there a difference in terms of uh, primary resistance? Would adding more drugs make a difference or adding new drugs, for example? Yeah, so in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, RCHOP has been the standard of care since 2002. And what you just asked is exactly what people have done. They've added more drugs to RCHOP, for example, EPOC-R. They've added biologic agents like lenalidomide and abrutinib and bortezomib. And people have even tried to swap out the rituximab for obinutuzumab to see if a, a different monoclonal antibody might be better. And people have also tried to say, you know, maybe we should do a transplant at the end of treatment. And unfortunately, all of those trials have been negative trials. And RCHOP remains the standard of care in 2021 for the vast majority of people with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So I think there's a couple of pieces that I take away from that. The first is that RCHOP is a very good regimen, and it does cure the majority of people. The second piece is that we now know that there are subsets that we can identify early, so people with double-hit lymphoma or people who have overexpression of MYC and BCL2 by protein, or people who have a very, very high IPI. And so for those really high-risk patients, if you pull them out of the pool, RCHOP is going to cure many, many people. And I don't think we need to keep trying to get better than that, because I do think that if you take out the high-risk patients, it's great. But the other piece to it is that we are still learning about the biology, and there's probably more subsets we can pull out to try to get to a better state of cure. And then the third piece I would just say is that there's been a pause in how we interpret some of these larger clinical trials. And that's because the amount of time it takes to get somebody onto a trial can sometimes be several weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And when you think about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, how many of those patients can actually wait two to three weeks before they start treatment? Not very many. So no. the people who actually make it to the trial are healthier and more fit, and they don't represent the whole population of diffuse large B-cell. So this inadvertent selection bias was shown by the Mayo Clinic group to really affect results. So I think prospective trials going forward are going to have to account for that. You were talking about MYC and BCL2, and it obviously makes me think about what are the possible forms of therapy. I wanted to ask you about some newer information on EZH2. 
can you tell us about that? Yeah, so one of the exciting things that happened in 2020 was the approval of one of the first targeted drugs in the management of follicular lymphoma, and that is the EZH2 inhibitor tazemetostat. So ECH2 is a gene that is mutated in a good portion of patients with follicular lymphoma as well as some of the other aggressive lymphomas. And a pivotal trial showed that tazemetostat is active both in mutant and non-mutant EZH2 follicular lymphoma, but much more active if the mutation is present. But the nice thing about this is that it is one of the first targeted approaches we've had in this disease that is based on this type of precision medicine. So it's certainly something to build upon, and, uh, and I know there are combinations that are being evaluated. Looking at other drugs that have been brought forward in lymphoma, what is the setting for use of EZH2 inhibitors now, and where might they go? Again, just your educated guess. Yeah, so I think that tazemetostat has a role in um, relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma. It's an oral agent. It's well-tolerated. Certainly, you know, the patient you had said with the late relapse, if they don't want any type of chemotherapy or they don't want intensive therapy, tazemetostat makes sense. In the third-line setting, uh, it would be very active as well. It probably has a better toxicity profile than the currently approved PI3 kinase inhibitors, which is the other mm -hmm. category of drugs that are available to us. But I think that as a single agent, tazemetostat is active, and I think some of the combination studies that are ongoing may be really important and helpful for us as a field. Yeah. Let me ask you, what are some of the side effects that you encounter, and how do you manage them? Yeah, so it's generally a really well-tolerated drug. You know, unlike some of the PI3 kinase inhibitors that are approved, you know, there isn't this impact on liver function or infection quite the same way. The phase two trial that was published really shows a very favorable toxicity profile. I mean, very mild cytopenias, really nothing specific outside of what you might get with a typical oral agent, you know, in terms of some people may have some low-grade nausea or diarrhea, but it's otherwise a very well-tolerated drug. Terrific. The main challenge is just that once you start it, you know, we don't know exactly when to stop. But I think, again, that's something we will learn about over time. Very interesting. So, you know, I think uh, a lot of us have our pet theories or things that really, really interest us in certain diseases. Your own view or your own, you know, sort of uh, educated, very educated guesses here. What may make the difference in patients who are particularly high risk, uh, double hit? If we had to predict a few years into the future, what are the things that you're excited about? Yeah, so for one thing, for double hit lymphoma, it's clear that intensive therapy, like dose-adjusted EPOC-R or some other more intense regimen, is better than RCHOP, that you're going to cure patients and you're going to cure a higher portion of patients. But the other piece that's really exciting is that, you know, CAR-T, which is cellular therapy, is being tested now in the frontline setting. So for these very high-risk patients with double-hit lymphoma, if they still have disease after one or two cycles of chemo, they're being taken directly to CAR-T as part of a clinical trial. And that may be really important. So I'm excited to see where CAR-T settles out. There's also another class of drugs that are very exciting, not yet FDA approved, and that's bispecific antibodies that typically target both a B-cell antigen like CD20 and a T-cell antigen like CD3. And in the relapse and refractory setting, they're very active. They're not approved yet, but even in the frontline setting, if we know who these high-risk patients are, maybe there's a spot for them there. Right, right. 
is there a role for immunotherapy? I mean, in a sense, some of the therapies you're talking about are immunotherapy, but the checkpoint inhibitors have any role in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Yeah, unfortunately, as of today, <laughs> T-cell checkpoint inhibitors don't really have much activity in non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. This is in contrast to Hodgkin's, where they've been really active. The few exceptions are primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, where checkpoint inhibitors are very active. And there may be some other types of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas where they will eventually be used. But as of today, they have no role. But, you know, that doesn't mean immunotherapy has no role. We actually have a lot of immunotherapy. I mean, rituximab itself is obviously immunotherapy, but we also have antibody drug conjugates. And perhaps the most exciting piece is cellular therapy, which mm -hmm. is the ultimate form of immunotherapy in terms of how it works and what it does to engage the immune system. Let's actually look at some clinical situations together. And again, I'm interested in how you approach this. The patient with low-grade lymphoma who's received, let's say, their upfront therapy, and then, you know, you were saying this person is not going to be cured of their disease. And let's say they do relapse in the short term, you know, one year out or six months out. How do you approach that patient? And then to dovetail on that, how about the patient, again, with low-grade who relapses five to 10 years later? What are your approaches there? Yeah, so this has actually been an important shift in how we think about low-grade lymphomas has been this time to relapse. And the LymphoCare trial showed that patients with mostly follicular lymphoma that relapse within two years of their initial chemoimmunotherapy actually have a five-year survival of only 50%. And this is in contrast to the late relapse patient who has a five-year survival of 90%. That's mm -hmm. a huge difference. So it I think is. it's important that if somebody relapses early with an indolent lymphoma, there's two things that need to be considered. One is, is there a transformation? So a biopsy is really important, and there is data showing that the majority of early relapses include a transformation. And then the other is to remember that this is not just a typical relapse, that an early relapse is a very poor prognostic sign and we need to adjust how we treat them. So what do you do for that patient? Okay, so you repeat a biopsy, and it's still low grade, so it looks the same under the microscope, and we'll make this a 65-year-old, uh, so we sort of stay below the classification of elderly. Yeah, so nobody knows the best treatment for somebody who has an early relapse. There's actually a national clinical trial asking this question. It's uh, S1608. And uh, it's a SWOG trial as well, but it's available through the NCTN to anybody in practice that it randomizes patients to more chemotherapy or to a lenalidomide and obinutuzumab arm or to a PI3 kinase inhibitor, umbrilisib and obinutuzumab. So the, the short answer is nobody knows. What I do personally, if somebody has relapsed early and if they can't get onto the trial, then I typically put them... Again, only if there's no trial available, because I do think this is a high priority group of patients with a poor outcome, I will usually try to give more chemotherapy and get them to an auto transplant. That would be my approach for an early relapse if I don't have a trial. Okay. And for the patient who relapses late, again, let's say the same age, limited comorbidities, five or six years later, they recur. What would your approach be there? Yeah. So, you know, a late relapse is a much better situation to be in. And we can consider some of the FDA-approved options, which includes lenalidomide and rituximab, tazemetostat, PI3 kinase inhibitors. You can go back to chemo, although usually I don't, but that's an option. 
bendamustine if they haven't received it, and rituximab. So for the late relapse patient, there is a really nice wide variety of options. And the challenge for any of us who take care of patients is that we don't know which one to use first, second, or third. I think my sort of go-to second line for a late relapse would be lenalidomide and rituximab because I think that there's very high complete response rates and it's limited therapy for a year and then patients are off treatment. So that's been my preferred route. But, you know, that's not right or wrong. There's lots of options out there. Yeah. Well, let's move into the setting of large cell lymphoma. And again, patient who relapses, let's say two years out with curative intent. Again, now that the options are are getting broader, there's transplant, there's CAR-T. What's your thinking uh, as you're sitting with a patient in that situation? Yeah. So what's currently approved for somebody who has a first relapse with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, whether it's one year, two years, or five years, the goal has been to give them salvage chemotherapy and go ahead with an autotransplant and reserve the CAR-T for third-line treatment. That's what's currently FDA-approved. There's a lot of people trying to change that and several different clinical trials looking at patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma where the disease comes back earlier. If it comes back within the first two years in particular, it's not really clear that the autotransplant is going to give them cure. So that's where CAR-T is being compared head-to-head with autotransplant. But, you know, outside of a trial, a relapse at any point, typically you give second-line chemotherapy like rice, like RGDP or something like Mm -hmm. that and try to get them to a transplant center. Yeah. So, so Sonali, I'd like to find out a little bit more. What are the things you're most excited about now in lymphoma? What's your research on? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So my career is really focused on relapsed and refractory lymphomas in a variety of different settings. But the more as this evolves, what I'm excited about, you know, one is really understanding how we get immunotherapy to be optimally used in this disease. That's one in whether it's immunotherapy with CAR-T, immunotherapy with some of the new monoclonal antibodies or antibody drug conjugates, or immunotherapy with the bispecific antibodies that are out there. The other immunotherapy that I'm excited about is that I did participate in a macrophage checkpoint inhibitor, which also, you know, the T cells are not the only immune cells on the block. You know, there's lots of other things. So we got (laughs) to think about attacking them. So one thing I'm excited about is immunotherapy, and I have, you know, a couple of trials and some research in that area. The other piece that has fascinated me goes back to your question about cure for low-grade lymphomas, for indolent lymphomas. I do think we know more about what the early drivers of disease are, and if we can start to, you know, really focus on those early drivers, I'm wondering if we can potentially cure some people with the initial treatment. So by the way, you just brought up two fascinating topics. Let me ask you a little bit more about, because this is, I have to admit, this is my first time hearing about macrophage checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah. Say a little bit more if you would. I can picture it, but tell us more. Yeah, so it's a very exciting area, but there's a lot going on in the lymphoma when it comes to the environment. You know, there's a lot of different cells there. There's T cells, there's macrophages, there's myeloid-derived stem cells, there's dendritic cells. I mean, it's a really complicated little mix. And yeah. what it, it turns out that many lymphoma cells will express a protein called CD47 on their surface that engages with SERP-alpha on the surface of a macrophage, and it essentially prevents that macrophage from eating the cancer cell. Yeah. Uh, there's also a second component of that interaction, and some people have used the terms eat me and don't eat me. So lymphoma cells will put out a don't eat me signal, 
and they will also turn down the eat me signal. And so there are drugs now that try to reverse that, activate the macrophage, and allow the macrophage to ingest the lymphoma cell. So we published this in the New England Journal of Medicine about two years ago, and I was lucky enough to be a part of that uh, particular investigation. And, and, you know, that's a whole new field of immunotherapy. So quick question. In the New England Journal, did you use the words eat me and don't eat me? Yes, we did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> I think that's great. It's I have to look that scientific. up. scientific. <laughs> <laughs> so Natalie, I want to ask you one last question about education and support for patients who have relapse disease. What do you find is most helpful for those patients and their families? What are some of the resources? Yeah, no, I think that when patients come to you with relapsed or refractory disease, I mean, it's really devastating. And, you know, they're trying to cope with it and comprehend it. And certainly as a physician, it's our job to provide what we can. But what I always do is refer them to several outstanding organizations. Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has a community for people to join. It gives people a sense of purpose because there are many activities that they can participate in. I'm also part of the Lymphoma Research Foundation. I'm their chair-elect for the next year for the Scientific Advisory Board, and LRF also has some really excellent support for patients. And then, of course, the American Cancer Society. For some of my younger patients, I also often recommend Immerman Angels. And I think that collectively, there is an emphasis on making sure patients don't feel alone that they feel empowered and educated. And, and that's where Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and other groups really come in. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. I want to thank Dr. Sonali Smith, again, who is a, a professor at University of Chicago and co-director of the Lymphoma Program. Sonali, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind invitation. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this very informative episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. Finally, I encourage you to sign up to receive notifications of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time. <laughs>